Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Elliot Weiner as our guest to do a deep dive into dialectical behavioral therapy. Dr. Weiner is the co-founder of New York Cognitive Behavioral Therapy in New York City, has expertise in both CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and DBT, which, as I mentioned before, is dialectical behavioral therapy, and specializes in working with people with post-traumatic stress disorder and other difficulties relating to trauma. He is the author of the new release, Self-Directed DBT Skills, which is a three-month DBT workbook. And he's passionate about helping people learn practical strategies to decrease suffering and build more fulfilling and satisfying lives, which is why we've brought him on here today. Dr. Weiner. welcome to Ideas That Change Lives. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, first, and foremost, I always feel like the best starting point is to get our definitions straight. So I'm assuming many of our listeners probably know what CBT is, but if you could give a quick, a quick, you know, soundbite about that. And then if you could share with us what DBT is, because I think people are less familiar with that. And maybe, you know, in your definition, you could also sort of walk us through what's different about DBT than CBT. That would be really helpful. Sure. So there's probably a number of different ways to answer that question. Um, the way that I often think about it is first and foremost that DBT in many ways is related to CBT or, or some might say that it kind of falls under the broader umbrella of CBT because many of the approaches and strategies come from CBT. Um, but the, the big, I would say, kind of difference or thing that, that is unique about DBT is that CBT is an approach to therapy that like traditionally focused on the idea that by making certain changes to how you think or what you do, that you can change how you feel. And so the emphasis there is on change. It's on, again, right, if I change ways that I think that are unhelpful for me or that are inaccurate, that can change how I feel. Um, or if I change things I do that might kind of maintain some of the problems that I struggle with emotionally, that that can help change how I feel. DBT uh, accepts that. That's one uh, component of DBT. But DBT adds to the mix the idea that sometimes change actually is not what's necessary. Sometimes what we need is to accept something that might be going on in our lives or to accept how we're feeling in the moment. Uh, and so the idea is that sometimes we don't need to change how we think in order to feel differently, or we don't necessarily need to change anything about our reality to feel differently. Sometimes what we need is actually to learn how to kind of sit with or tolerate whatever the reality is or whatever the emotions are that we're dealing with. And so uh, basically DBT focuses on this balance of strategies for change and strategies for acceptance. Mm, got it. So how would you determine with, with a client um, when you should employ DBT and CBT? Like, how do you know when this person just has to like accept, work more on acceptance versus this change piece? It's an interesting question. Um, and I don't know that I would think of it purely in terms of like, okay, is this a person who also needs to work on acceptance and therefore I'll go with DBT as opposed to CBT. Um, and I referred to like more traditional CBT. So the truth is that more modern kind of variations of CBT do incorporate more of these acceptance strategies. Um, and so what I would say is that DBT tends to be more of the right fit 
often when someone is struggling with uh, with challenges in a wider variety of areas in their lives, um, CBT often is more of the right fit when there are like one or two specific problem areas that we can be a little more targeted about. Whereas DBT often there are uh, a number of areas where the person is struggling. And part of the reason for that is that the people who DBT tends to be the best fit for are people who struggle to manage their emotions or the term that we use is to regulate their emotions um, kind of in like a pervasive type of way. And so uh, whereas if somebody, let's say, struggles with anxiety um, in a particular context, like social anxiety, let's say, CBT is often the right fit for that, the best fit for that. Whereas someone who struggles to manage their emotions across a variety of situations, possibly across emotions, not just anxiety, but anxiety and anger and shame and guilt and, and maybe other emotions that we might think of as positive emotions too, like love or happiness. Um, so someone who, who really just does not know how to manage their emotions more broadly, uh, often that's where DBT would be the right fit because DBT focuses especially on strategies for learning how to manage emotions kind of across the board. Got it. So if there's someone who um, seems to, it's not just situational, like, you know, it's not like they started a new job and now they're having anxiety. It's like in general, they suffer from anxiety and let's say other emotions that they feel very strongly um, and they need to just have skills to regulate those in, in general, in generalized situations that would be more appropriate for them. Yeah, I would say, first of all, generalized situations as opposed to something that's just like, you know, right now I got a new job and I'm struggling with it, that that certainly I wouldn't go right to DBT. Some Possibly some of the skills from DBT might apply, but I wouldn't say that's a person who I would recommend like a DBT therapist necessarily. Um, but not just across situations, I would also say kind of more, like I said, pervasive uh, throughout their lives. Often people who really would benefit from DBT have struggled to manage their emotions for a long time in a, in a lot of contexts, as opposed to like just one emotion, like just anxiety or just in their job context or something like that. Got us. Got it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your own story in terms of what led you to pursue this as a therapy modality? Like when you were studying this, it was um, sort of more uh, uncommon than it is now, right? So what led you to um, to pursue DBT. Yeah, it was definitely more uncommon at that point in time. Um, now it's it's been a little more popularized, especially because a number of celebrities have spoken about it in the last few years, uh, which had not been the case when I when I stumbled across DBT. Uh, so the way I came across it was that I was already a CBT therapist. Uh, I I did a lot of CBT. It was very much how I thought about things, and I had the experience of working with someone uh, on one of my clinical placements while I was in graduate school who I tried everything I could think of um, to help. I tried everything you know, in my CBT tool belt and nothing worked and nothing could help them. And ultimately, uh, under the guidance of my supervisor at the time, I recommended that they, uh, that they transfer and see somebody else because I did not think I was helping them, unfortunately. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then what ended up happening was about a year or two later, uh, I someone recommended that I read like the original textbook on DBT, and I got probably less than one chapter in, and like I felt like my eyes had been opened and like light bulbs were going off, and I just everything I was reading very much sounded like it explained what I had been missing with that person who had really stuck in my mind, um, and also gave like very clear strategies and approaches that I thought would have been much more effective. And so it just, it really seemed like it 
was like spot on, not for everyone. I mean, nothing is, is the right fit for everyone, but for people like that, people who struggle with the things that that person had been struggling with, I was like, this is brilliant. This is what I was missing. Um, and I, and I really, not only did I think it was a good fit, I really liked it. I enjoyed doing it. And so it became a bigger part of what I, uh, started to do at that point. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that client and the other clients that you've worked with, that you employ DBT with, it seems, and I know you and I have spoken about this in the past, there's, there's this special piece with DBT that you need to learn to sort of sit with your misery or your strong emotions, I guess they don't have to be misery, <laughs> rather than pursuing some temporary relief from them, right? And like, um, like a not adaptive relief, like some kind of escapism, right? So I think most of us employ some form of escapism at some point, right? Like when we're feeling uncomfortable about something or we need to distract ourselves. So how can, how can a person determine whether their escapism tendencies are at a healthy level or not? <laughs> so before I answer that, I would actually say you're, you used the phrase rather than, um, so that you know you need to sit with it rather than escape from it. And in DBT, we would actually emphasize both that we might need to be able to escape from it and also to be able to sit with it, possibly not at the same exact moment in time. Um, but we, the, the, the D in DBT dialectical refers to a number of things, but one of them is the idea that two things that might seem mutually exclusive can actually often coexist. Uh, and so the idea would largely be about how do I develop the ability to do both? And not only how do I develop the ability to do both, but learning how to do one can enhance the ability to do the other. So in other words, the more I am able to sit with strong, uncomfortable emotions, the more effective it might make me when I do decide that it's time to get a break and distract myself or escape temporarily. And vice versa, the more I know I have strategies in my tool belt for getting a break from these emotions and escaping them, or in other words, the more I know that this will not last forever, that I can get a break when I need it, the easier it will be for me to actually sit with these emotions and tolerate them uh, temporarily. Uh-huh. Got it. So can you give an example of like a situation where either in your own life or a client's life or a hypothetical situation where that would come into play? Sure. Give me a second to think of an example. <clears throat> Let's say someone is going through um, a challenging moment in a romantic relationship. Like let's say someone is uh, is at a moment in their relationship with their partner where they're not sure if they're going to remain together or not. And maybe they have done something or, or not necessarily they've done something, but their relationship is at a moment where, where, the, where your partner is basically saying like, I'm not sure I want to continue. I need to think about this. I need some time. I need some space, right? The emotions would understandably be uh, pretty overwhelming for many people in that moment. If your partner is basically saying like, I don't know if I want to continue. And let's assume that you do want to continue in the relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and there might be a really strong desire to resolve things right now. Right? Like it's really hard to sit with that uncertainty. It's really hard to sit with the anxiety that might be coming up, possibly other emotions, you know, like guilt or shame or, or anger at the other person or something like that. Right, Whatever those emotions are, often when we're in those moments, we want to resolve the situation. We feel like a strong urge to like address everything right now, right? Like get the person on the phone or get together with them and talk things through and hash things out. And the other person at that moment might basically be saying like, I'm not ready to talk about that. And so now... I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm the person who's being told I have to wait, I'm in the situation where I have these feelings and 
I really don't want to have them. I really don't want to sit with this discomfort, but I can't make my partner figure things out any faster than they are going to, or I can't right. even necessarily convince them to talk to me until they're ready to. And so at a moment like that, right, on the one hand, I need to be able to sit with those emotions. I need to be able to sit with my anxiety. Um, if I'm just desperate to escape the anxiety, then I might, you know, do something unhelpful or unhealthy, right? Whether it's, you know, bombarding my partner with texts when they're saying they need space or showing up at their door and begging them to talk to me or something like that, which again, might actually um, uh, backfire. Right. But, or, or I might just be tempted to do something to escape from the anxiety that might not affect the relationship necessarily, but that might just be ineffective or unhealthy. So I might, uh, you know, I might be tempted to drink or to use drugs or to, you know, spend a bunch of money if I'm someone who finds retail therapy as, you know, a helpful way of coping with my anxiety. Uh, I say retail therapy, meaning it like to an unhealthy degree, let's say. And so on the one hand, I would need to be able to sit with those emotions rather than, uh, just escaping them as, as quickly as possible. And at the same time, right? Like, I don't know how long my partner is going to take to figure this out. It might be that they're saying they need two hours and I just have to sit with this for two hours. Or it might be that they're basically saying like, I don't know how long I need. And this might be days, it might be weeks. And it's probably not going to be helpful for me to feel this level of anxiety for, you know, a week or two or a month or whatever it may be. Because right. How am I going to function at work, in my friendships, in my family life if I'm just overwhelmed by anxiety? And so I also will need strategies and skills for how can I get a break from this anxiety so that I can function and simply so that I can not be miserable the entire time. Right. So what would you what would you recommend to them or to anyone as a healthy <laughs> form of escapism? Like I think a lot of people use like, like you said, retail therapy, like I'm talking about the not, you know, more extreme cases like drinking and drugs, like just in everyday life, the average person might use, uh, like they might use retail therapy. They might use, you know, vegging mm -hmm. out on Netflix all night, like whatever it is just to like get out of their own mind. Um, yeah. so, so what would be a, a healthy way of escapism that you would, that you talk about to your clients? Sure. So I would say healthy is probably somewhat subjective and probably depends on what is effective for you in the sense that it doesn't cause bigger problems or new problems. So watching Netflix is not inherently unhealthy. Uh, mm -hmm. We all probably sometimes escape by distracting ourselves with TV or with our phones or something like that. It might be a question of degree, right? So you refer right. to Netflix all night. If I watch Netflix all night, or if I try and just sit in front of the TV for the next two weeks while I wait for my partner, that's probably going to be number one, somewhat depressing. Um, number two, it's probably going to mean that I'm not doing a very good job at work and I'm not engaging with my friends and everything else that I might do that helps me at times. Uh, so sometimes what we're aiming for is simply to get away from extremes and find a healthy balance. So maybe it's helpful for me to distract myself with an hour of Netflix rather than six hours of Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. So distractions broadly can be a healthy escape as long as they're not causing problems and as long as we know they're a temporary escape and that we're going to come back to whatever the situation is or the problem that we need to deal with. Um, sometimes we talk about things that can help not only distract us, but can help shift our emotions, uh, like generate a different emotion. So it might be that what I, if I'm feeling really anxious about this relationship, then, or about, you know, waiting to find out what's going to happen with this relationship, then it might be that simply doing something that causes me to experience a different emotion might be helpful. So something that causes me to feel 
whether it's, you know, happiness, like watching, you know, a comedy on Netflix as opposed to, you know, a horror movie or something like that, let alone just, you know, even if it's not a, an emotion I enjoy, like, you know, watching a comedy and, you know, and laughing, even just, let's say, watching, uh, I don't know, what would be a good example here? Um, if I were Maybe to- like going, maybe going to exercise. So you're, you know, um, you're feeling a different emotion, right? You're feeling, you know, all the endorphins that come with that. Would that be an example? Yeah, I think of that, I, that certainly could be a distraction. I think of that as, a, you know, almost a different category, which I'll come back to in a second. But I, maybe a better example would be if I'm feeling depressed, watching a horror movie actually can be a really helpful way of distracting myself, because not only does it hold my attention, but it causes me to feel something different than the emotion that I'm feeling. So so that was part of what I was referring to, is just the idea of like doing something that generates another emotion. But to your point, exercise is another great example of something that can uh, that can help not solve the problem or necessarily make me feel better about the situation that I'm dealing with, but that might help just decrease the intensity of my emotions in general. Cause like you said, endorphins, um, and so intense exercise can be helpful. There's all kinds of relaxation exercises that we teach, you know, ways of breathing that can help decrease, uh, certain intense emotions, muscle relaxation types of exercises, things like that. Um, and all of that, all the things that we're referring to fall under, uh, one of the areas of skills that we talk about in DBT, which is called distress tolerance. So distress tolerance is all about how do I, again, how do I tolerate my distress? Meaning how do I get through this moment simply without doing something that makes it worse or causes new or bigger problems for me? So it's about essentially sit, uh, sitting with this, whether or not I'm actively feeling the emotion at this moment, which is different than the question of, you know, how do I, uh, shift my emotional experience in the longer term? How do I not just survive this moment, but how do I, you know, basically feel more of the emotion that I want to feel? Right, right. That makes sense. Um, And I think that's really helpful in a lot of a big sense for anybody, because I think we all, you know, um, have situations where we um, you know, feel, you know, they're not always to the caliber of, you know, a, you know, a, a part life partner, you know, potentially leaving us, but we, you know, it could be things with our kids, stressful at school or, you know, situations that we know are going to last for a while and we're going to have to figure out adaptive ways to deal with them. Um, so I think it's helpful to know that there can be a healthy form of escapism. I think a lot of us feel guilty when we're like feeling like we're using a form of escapism. Um, but I think also um, this idea of just working on this tolerance, um, you know, towards sitting with the emotions is is such an important piece. Um, I know in DBT, one of the fascinating components is that you could actually in, in many, because it depends on the plan you have with your specific therapist, but in many instances, um, you're allowed to call the therapist in between sessions. So if you're having an intense experience, um, let's say like right after your spouse tells you that they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to need time to think if this relationship is going to work, that they can actually, you know, they don't have to wait until next week's session with the therapist. They can call the therapist in like an emergency situation like that to, to talk through things. So, um, so in doing that, I know you've done that before with your clients, um, what do you find helps them in the moment the most of these different pieces in your toolbox that you have? Yeah. So it, again, it varies depending on the person and, and, you know, knowing them and what specific strategies they find helpful. Um, but I would say when it's, uh, something that we might consider like an emotional crisis or emergency or something like that, often it's really just about surviving this moment. And so even the example I gave where, you know, I might be 
struggling with these emotions for a couple of weeks, right? There's a difference between how do I sit with these feelings for a couple of weeks versus I just was told this and I'm really overwhelmed right now. And the emotions are right. really intense. And, you know, how do I just get through the next five minutes or the next hour? Um, and so in moments like that, usually the the first things that I might recommend in a moment like that would include like doing some intense exercise. Uh, and so it could be even really brief, uh, intense exercise. So like going for, for a run. And if someone's not up for going for a run or they're not someone who exercises in general, I will sometimes recommend to someone like whatever you're willing to do, even just briefly do it as intensely as you can. So like do as many jumping jacks as you can as fast as possible or as many. Wow. Fast as possible. Interesting. Yeah. And the idea, right. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't mean that I'm going to feel happy after, but the idea is if I'm feeling extremely overwhelmed right now, it can help bring down the intensity of that feeling. Uh, so that's one strategy. Um, another one that, that very often comes up is what we call the temperature skill in DBT. And some people refer to it as ice diving. And this one is basically that you take a bowl or a bucket, uh, and you fill it with cold water and you throw in some ice cubes to make sure it's cold, uh, not freezing, freezing cold. We're not trying to give anyone frostbite, but cold enough to be uncomfortable. And basically you have the person uh, bend over and submerge their face in the water. Um, so, you know, submerge their face, meaning not their entire head, but like their eyes, their nose, their mouth. So they can't, uh, they can't breathe obviously while their face is in the water and hold their breath for typically about 45 seconds, sometimes, you know, coming up for air and doing it a few times. And this kicks in something called the mammalian dive reflex. So all mammals have this dive reflex where basically when you do this, when you, uh, hold hold your breath while you are submerging your face in cold water it basically tells your body to kick in your relaxation response or your parasympathetic nervous system wow um, familiar with that term and so it can be again an effective way of just really rapidly bringing down just intense feelings of being overwhelmed uh and that doesn't mean that that's like the end of the story and like now i'm good to go and i don't need to do anything else but it might help just get out of that uh, like emotional danger zone, so to speak, so that, wow. I can, so that I can think clearly enough to say like, well, what do I want to do for the rest of the night, let alone the next couple of weeks, um, just to get through this night. Yeah. And I'm sure it's such a help to them that, that yeah. there is this component of the therapy that you're there for them. Like if they feel two hours later, they can't get through the rest of the night, they can call you again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The idea behind it is like, it's one thing for us to talk in session about skills or strategies that you could use and we can come up with a, you know, a rock solid game plan, but it's a very different thing when you're in the moment and the emotions are running high. Uh, the Absolutely. Way often, yeah. The way we often think of it is like, it's the equivalent of calling a timeout in the middle of the basketball game and going over to the coach and saying like, what do we do here? Right. Like you can practice all week long, but that doesn't mean there isn't a place for like calling a timeout when there's, you know, 30 seconds left and you're down by two and, you need to know like what's the way that we're going to try and tie this game or win this game. Absolutely. And I think um, I imagine many people feel that that's one of the drawbacks of traditional therapy that, you know, unless you're happen to be in a part in one of your, you know, particularly anxious moments or whatever, when you have your actual session, it only goes so far, right? Like to be able to call your therapist and talk it out in the moment, have you have them coach you through it in the moment um, is probably life-changing. Um, so, um, I'm sure that that, is that specific only to DBT? Is DBT the only therapy modality that has that component? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of therapists, non-DBT therapists who do things like that. I 
I'm not aware of any other therapy where it's built in like that, where like part of the framework of the therapy includes that and, you know, and really kind of requires that. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I am just not aware of any therapeutic modality that like specifically incorporates it that way. Right, right. Um, so that's how you help people get through like the intensity of the moment. And then you sort of help them have a plan for, you know, however much longer they're going to have to tolerate that distress. Yeah. Um and, and the goal beyond that really is it's not just about like getting through an emotional crisis. Really, the broader goal of, of what we call phone coaching is helping people learn how to apply skills in their day to day lives. Because, again, it's one thing to talk about it, you know, in a session. It's another thing to do it like when the moment strikes and you need the skill in that moment. And so, like I said, it's not just about getting through like the emergency moments. It's also about even something where the emotions might be more mild, but the person is like, I don't know what to do here. Like either I don't know what skill to use or I I don't know how to apply it to the situation. And like you said, you know, the person might need to have a conversation with their boss that they weren't anticipating in two hours and they don't have the time or the luxury of waiting until their session next Tuesday. Yeah. Um, And so the goal is really to help the person like learn how to be their own best therapist, how to, you know, how to identify the skills and use the skills uh, going forward in their lives, not just, you know, while they're seeing me for therapy for a year or whatever, but to, to be able to kind of take this forward because otherwise they would, you know, need to be able to call me forever. Right. For sure. You know, I'm reminded of this whole acceptance piece reminds me of two things. Um, One, something from my book actually um, where there's, I, I bring this amazing analogy I once heard where, Um, like think of a negative emotion as, um, you know, water in a fish tank, right? If, if you want to like be able to see like the fish clearly in the fish tank and you want to make the water clear, it doesn't help you to like push the mud down, right? (laughs) If you push mud down in a fish tank, all it does is churn it up more, right? If you just let it sit, um, and you have the forbearance to like, just accept like the water will clear on its own. So it's the same thing with really a negative emotion. When you try to push it down and like, you know, tell yourself I shouldn't be feeling this way or I have to find some way to not feel this way. Like often it like works you up so much more. Um, whereas if you, if you can just find the way to accept it, um, it actually like, like helps you move to the next piece. And another thing I'm reminded of, um, I, I love the work of Edith Eager. Are you familiar with her? No, I'm not. Okay. So she was um, a Holocaust survivor and she also was a a big therapist and she writes extensively about the two, about her experience in the Holocaust and about um, her experience um, working with people. And um, she has this amazing quote about acceptance. Um, She wrote, being a survivor is being a thriver and requires absolute acceptance of what is if we discount our pain or punish ourselves for feeling lost or isolated or scared about our challenges, however insignificant these may seem to someone else, then we're choosing to be a victim, right? We're not seeing our choices. We're judging ourselves. So I guess my next question to you is, um, how do you work with your with your clients, you know, after the acceptance piece, right? I imagine also comes this sort of judgment piece. So, so how do you, how do you work with them on that? Because that sort of goes hand in hand with acceptance, right? Like to accept something else, you have to not be judging yourself. Yeah, bingo. So one of the skills that we emphasize, uh, one of the sets of skills that we that we focus on is mindfulness, and one of the mindfulness skills that we talk about is uh, is approaching everything essentially non judgmentally, including ourselves. 
And I think that what you said is spot on, that part of what often gets in the way of acceptance is judgment, right? Whether we're having trouble accepting a reality or a situation because we're judging it as bad or wrong or something that shouldn't be, or we are judging ourselves, right? And, you know, saying there's something wrong with us or something bad about us, uh, perhaps even the fact that we're struggling with whatever we might be struggling with. And so in order to increase acceptance of whatever is in this moment or whatever it is in my life that I don't want to have to accept, right? The, one of the biggest parts of that is letting go of judgments about it. And to be clear, letting go of judgments doesn't mean that I'm judging positively. It doesn't mean I'm letting go of negative judgments and now I'm saying this is actually wonderful and like, you know, I'm so happy it happened. Like we're not lying to ourselves, right? Is the idea of trying to drop judgments entirely and approach it just as as facts, as is the reality. Um, it may not be the reality that I wanted. That's not a judgment. That's simply a statement of fact that I'm not, you know, I didn't want this reality, uh, but I'm not judging it as a bad thing, a thing that shouldn't be or that shouldn't have come about. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so it seems like the two major components that we've touched on here um, is coping skills, right? And acceptance, are those the two, did I get that right? Or am I missing something there? Uh, those are, I think, the two big things we've touched on. Coping skills is a term that we could probably use to cover like a range of different things. So we, we were talking especially about what we call distress tolerance skills, which are about like coping with like this moment, this like emotional crisis type of moment. Um, but we could also talk about coping in a broader way of, you know, coping with uh, long-standing emotions, coping with certain aspects of our reality. And, and so we have other skills uh, that we talk about. Uh, I didn't even mention relationships, right? So coping with uh, challenging moments in relationships and how to communicate in those moments or how to figure out what our priorities are in those moments, all of which are, are part of DBT. They're just different sort of different sets of skills beyond the distress tolerance types of coping skills. Right. So I imagine you deal with, since you're dealing with people more that it's not, like we said at the beginning, it's not really situational. These are more pervasive, extremely strong emotions they're dealing with over a long period of time. Um, so I imagine you, you do a lot of sort of anger management or anxiety management. Um, do you, do you, like, how do you, how do you work with people on anger? Like, I feel like that is a very, um, it's a very hard emotion to work on. And I feel like the coping skills for that are probably different than some of the other things we talked about, like anxiety. Yes and no. Um, so certainly there are some specific strategies, but the, the broader approach isn't all that different. And so first and foremost, I would probably, if somebody came to me and they were struggling with anger, the first thing I would try and do is figure out how does that anger manifest itself in their actions? Meaning like, what are they doing when they're angry that's causing problems in their lives? Because anger in a vacuum is not inherently problematic, right? It's an emotion. It's a thing we feel internally. All humans feel it at times. Uh, I, I assume all humans feel it at times. If not all of us, then certainly almost all of us do, right? And so the emotion itself is not the problem. The question is either what are we doing when we're angry or what is it about the anger, even if we're not doing anything kind of externally, like aggressively, let's say, even if we're not doing anything like that, what is it about experiencing the anger that's causing problems for me, maybe even on an internal level, right? Even if I have learned how to stifle it, if I'm feeling it constantly internally, that's probably causing problems. So step one would be figuring out like how to define this more specifically, right? Like what is the the experience of anger for this person that needs to be targeted, right? If mm -hmm. when if when I get angry, 
I, you know, I don't know, yell at my kids or something like that, right? So then I might say, okay, like that means that, you know, behavior number one that I want to target is decreasing yelling at my kids. And basically we would, we would come up with the list, whether it's one thing or 10 things that, you know, that I do when I'm angry or that cause problems for me when I'm angry, that would be like the targets. And then we would be strategic about figuring out, okay, that specific thing, how do we deal with it, right? So number one, if I'm feeling that level of anger, what could I do rather than yelling at my kids, uh, right? Like what would be helpful ways, number one, of bringing down the intensity of the anger in that moment, maybe of stepping away and getting a break. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've definitely had moments where I, I have a three-year-old son and there's times where he does things that I find infuriating. And as much as I know he's a three-year-old and he's just being a normal toddler, there's times where I'm so frustrated. And the first thing I know I need to do is like step out of the room and just like give myself a minute to like do nothing. And whether it's distracting myself or just doing some kind of like relaxation exercise. And right. so step one is like, what am I going to do uh, in order to ensure I don't act on that anger ineffectively? And then often step two is figuring out, okay, what could I do not just to get through the moment without acting ineffectively, but what is a healthy way of bringing down the intensity of that anger, right? Is there something like I just said, a breathing relaxation exercise or something like that that could help bring it down? And then the other thing that I would highlight is when we do something ineffective, right? If I, if I yell at my three-year-old, right? Um, which fortunately, I don't want to give people the wrong impression. I don't do very often. <laughs> but if I, yell at, if I yell at my three-year-old, right? yes. in that moment, I'm trying to solve a problem. So often we look at problematic behaviors as problems alone. And we look at that type of thing and we say, yelling at a kid, that's a problem. That's a bad thing. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't raise your voice. Um, yelling is probably not even the right word. Sometimes I snap. <laughs> I'm not loving the example I chose to give. Um, but right, like I'm on the one hand, certainly it's problematic. I don't want to keep on doing it. On the other hand, what we often overlook is that that is also a solution to a problem that I'm facing, right? So if I'm snapping at my three-year-old because he just pushed my one-year-old to the floor, right? My snapping at him is an effort to solve the problem of him pushing his baby daughter to his baby sister rather to the floor. And I'm trying to solve that. I'm trying to get him to stop it. I'm trying to get him to learn that he can't do that. And so on the one hand, yes, it's problematic and it has to stop. And on the other hand, if I just stop, right, I still have an unsolved problem. I still have a three-year-old who's pushing a one-year-old to the floor. And so I need to figure out not only a healthier way of managing my frustration and not snapping at him, but I also need to figure out how do I solve that problem more effectively? If snapping is not the most effective way to solve that problem, then what are my alternatives, right? Is it that yeah. I need, is it just that I need to communicate more effectively? Is it that I need to, you know, I don't know, separate them when I see that things are starting to escalate so that it doesn't reach the point of him pushing her to the floor? Is it that I need to, you know, outside of that moment that I need to teach him how to communicate effectively when she's doing something that he doesn't like? And so that's the other side of this is it's not just, okay, what do I do in the moment when I'm feeling angry? It's also like, what purpose is that anger serving for me? And how could I kind of uh, solve that or accomplish that purpose in an effective way? Absolutely. I think a lot of parents think to themselves or I've heard parents, I heard parents say they only listen to me when I yell, right? Like I have to yell or I have to do this because that's the only way to get through to them. Right. <clears throat> so it's a disentangling those two things, right? Like, okay, so this thing that you don't like the yelling or the anger, you believe it's solving a problem. So you have to figure out other ways to get them to solve the problem. And then 
hopefully you'll be able to manage the anger better, right? If you see that you have to do it to solve your problem or to get through to people, let's say, then it's it's not going to be helpful. Um, yeah. And I would say that to, the, to a parent who's saying that, and certainly I felt that way in certain moments, right? Like it's a it's a short term versus long term thing, right? It, it, right now, if the only if they only listen to me when I yell right now, right, then of course, I'm going to be tempted to yell every time they're not listening to me. Long term, the question is, well, I need other strategies, right? Like the fact that that I haven't yet figured out how to get them to listen to me except by yelling means that I need to figure out alternatives that I need strategies for getting them to listen to me that don't involve yelling which then brings you to the question of, okay, is this a moment where the short-term outweighs the long-term? If my three-year-old is reaching for the stove that's on, short-term outweighs long-term. I probably need to yell at him to make sure he doesn't burn his hand badly. Whereas, right. you know, when he pushes his one-year-old sister to the ground, like, I don't want him to do that. At long-term, I don't want him to repeat that again and again and again, but I'm not, like, concerned for her safety and well-being in that moment. Like, she's, she's fine. Like, nothing terrible is happening because she happens to get pushed to the ground, you know, from... Right. I think a lot of times parents say that to make themselves feel better about yelling. You know, I think there really are different ways to get children to listen, obviously, without yelling, even if you have difficult children. So um, I think a person also has to be careful that they're not just using this as an excuse for like a difficult behavior that they feel bad about. Right. Um, And like you said, long term, you, you know, even if your kids are difficult and you think that's the case, you have to find ways to navigate that so that that isn't always the case. Um, and I have, I have, um, you know, I have one kid that like always just says like, as long as you don't yell at me, like I'm happy to listen. <laughs> like kids don't like being yelled at, right? Like they really deep down they don't, you know. So like a lot of times, like you know, you can be able to effectively communicate with them without the yelling if you if you just are able to like talk that out. Another thing that this reminds me of is really an idea that changed my life, which is that I think we all know this intuitively, but just sort of bringing it to the forefront of my mind and practicing this has been so impactful that um, a lot of times we, we think if we don't say something in the moment, we're going to lose the opportunity to say it, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't tell this to this person that I'm working with, like not going to get to tell them later. But the opposite is really true. There's very few situations, unless you're just like running into a stranger on the subway, there's very few situations where you can't go back to that person with feedback later. Um, and because of that, it's, it's, it's so much more productive to measure our words and make sure how we're acting or what we're doing is, is what we want to be doing. Um, because you can't, you can never take something back, right? You can apologize for something. You can try to mitigate the impact. You can't erase something from someone's memory, right? But you really do have the opportunity to do things later. So I've had, since I really brought this to the forefront of my brain, I've tried it in a normal number of scenarios where let's say I got worked up about something and I wanted to say something to someone. And I said, you know what? I could always say this tomorrow. You know, am I going to feel worse for having said this or better for having said this? And most of the time, I think really all the time, the answer is I'll feel better for not saying it. And I'm glad that I caught myself from saying it then, you know? Um, And I would say in those moments where we're saying to ourselves that like, oh, I'm not going to have another opportunity. I think often what's happening is we know ourselves and we are avoidant of like bringing something up at a moment where things are calm. And often it's not that I won't have another opportunity. It's that I won't take another opportunity. It could be. Say that again. No, I said it could be. You could be right. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I know for, I know for myself, right. If I get, you know, uh, frustrated by something that's, you know, a family member of mine does and I choose not to say it in that moment, often part of what's happening for me is like the next time I'm with them, right. Like I, if things are going well, I'm not going to want to rock the boat. I'm not going to make a, an otherwise happy, comfortable moment, uncomfortable by bringing up something upsetting. And so it's more that like, I'm going to want to avoid addressing this later when I'm calm, as opposed to that, like I couldn't bring it up. Right, right, right. But in most of those cases, do you feel better having, having not said it, you know, versus, you know, a lot of times when you say something critical to someone or something that, you know, is controversial or makes a conflict, let's say, um, the conflict itself gives you so much anxiety or, or distress that a lot of things aren't even worth going through that distress. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with what you were saying that like often waiting is more effective. Um, what I what I, I was saying is that that um, that tendency that we sometimes have to like blurt the thing out in that moment is, I think, driven by by a thought that's often not actually the case. But yeah, many times like you, I later realize or decide that like actually it's really not that important um, for me to bring up. And it was a moment of intense emotion, let's say, where I wanted to bring it up. I was really frustrated. Or I decide I do think it's important for me to bring up and I bring it up in a much more measured, effective way because I've calmed down and because I've been able to think about how I can most effectively communicate it rather than in that moment where I, you know, where the anger is talking rather than, you know, some more balanced part of my brain that isn't just about my anger. Right. And I think that's where the distress tolerance comes in, too. Like I had a situation last week, um, you know, as I've talked about on the podcast before, I'm a writer. And something came up with um, one of the publications I work for, um, you know, with one of my articles that when it actually went to print, it wasn't how it was supposed to be. And I was like very upset. And I was like, I have to deal with this today. This is going to get dealt with today because, you know, uh, they need to know that this is not how, like, I can't work with them. Like, uh, you know, all those things that would come up in someone's mind in that situation. Fast forward a week later, I, I decided not to pursue it that day because, I, I, you know, I was like, you know what, maybe, you know, of course I want to resolve this today, but I don't know it's going to be like the right, the right moment to, you know, figure this out now. We're a week later, I still haven't resolved it, but I feel okay about it. You know, I think um, I was able to like look at the bigger picture after I let myself get through that day. And I feel calmer about it now. I'm not even sure I'm going to make as big of a deal of it as I initially wanted to because there are other considerations involved. And sometimes I think also like we're not able to see the other considerations when we like really feel like in the moment we have to nip something in the butt. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think all, I think all of that kind of comes together. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about your book though, um, because we know you have a new release as we were mentioned, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and we'd love to hear um, more about the workbook and how it can help people in their daily lives. Yeah. So the book, uh, I guess I'll start by saying this part of DBT uh, generally is not just like your traditional individual therapy. Uh, and it's not just the phone coaching that you and I were talking about earlier. It's also that we have like all these skills that we've been talking about. We teach in like a group format typically uh, so it's much more like a classroom type of setting, meaning it's not like a support group or a 12 step group, like people may have experienced or that people may be familiar with from, you know, TV shows or movies or things like that. So we teach the skills in this, like I said, classroom type of setting, a more of a didactic format. Um, and the workbook is intended to basically, uh, provide that, to provide the, like, 
the lessons that we teach in our groups to people who, for any number of reasons, might not uh, might not join our groups, uh, might not might not join any DBT group, whether because of finances, whether because of like you know access to a DBT group, like geographically speaking. Uh, there's also many people who might not be ready to like fully uh, immerse themselves in DBT, but have heard about it and want to learn some of these skills or who might simply benefit from learning these skills without like really fully needing like the, the comprehensive approach to DBT that we take. And so the book is intended to be like that, uh, like, like what we teach in the groups. So it is structured as like a three month workbook meaning each chapter uh, represents a week it's it's 12 chapters long and each week we teach certain skills and there are exercises that the reader can do so actually the chapters themselves are pretty short because we essentially teach the like the general principles behind the skill and then the exercises are really i would say like the key part because just like any other skill if you want to develop a skill you have to practice in order to get good at it and so what we do is in each chapter, it's essentially you read the, the kind of introductory material. And then the goal is that the reader then practices the skills over the course of the week using those exercises. And although we don't cover literally every single DBT skill in the book, we cover the majority of them and certainly the ones that we think are like the most frequently used or the most kind of like central ones for someone who wants to get at least some solid exposure to the DBT skills. So can you walk us through what the 12 skills are, or maybe if that's, if that's too much, some of, some of the highlights from your, your favorite skills? <laughs> so it's actually more than 12 skills because each chapter uh, may have more than one skill. I actually don't even know off the top of my mind uh, how many skills there are in there, but if I had to guess, I would guess that it's probably more like 20, 25, something like that. Yeah. Uh, oh man, my favorites. That is a tough question because I really do use these skills um, in my in my life all the time. Um, I'm going to highlight the interpersonal effectiveness skills, partially because we haven't really talked about them in the course of our conversation, and partially yeah. because. I really do find them extremely helpful. So what we call interpersonal effectiveness skills in DBT are basically about managing challenges that come up in relationships, including especially like communication skills and communication strategies. Uh, and actually what we were just talking about a moment ago, where you were talking about like moments where we might want to measure our words or we might want to bite our tongue. In those moments, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're trying to balance different priorities, right? On the one hand, I might want to get this person to either, you know, fix a problem that they created or to apologize for something that they did or something like that. And often in moments like that, right, we're balancing that, right? Like our desire to achieve a certain goal or achieve a certain objective against other considerations like my relationship with this person and how I want them to feel about me and what I want for this relationship or how, how we feel about ourselves and our self-respect. So essentially like I can, I can lash out, I can, you know, say the thing that's on the tip of my tongue to, you know, to kind of snap at the person, but I might not feel very good about myself after that. And so often we're juggling these different considerations. And so one of the skills that we that we teach in the book is about exactly this. It's about how do I clarify my priorities in any given interpersonal situation and how do I balance them? How do I figure out basically which one is the one that I want to prioritize the most or which are the ones that I want to prioritize the most? And then using that to inform 
uh, which specific communication strategies I want to use, because obviously I'm going to communicate in a very different way if I really care about this relationship and I'm conscious of that, versus if I don't care that much about how this person feels about me, but I really want to get what I'm looking for in this moment, right? If I am uh, if I am on the phone with a customer service representative from my cell phone company and something has been botched on my bill and I'm getting charged a lot, right? I don't care that much how that person feels about me. I might, you know, want to be nice for any number of reasons. I might think that I'll get my way if I'm nicer, or I might just, you know, for my own self-respect, want to be nice. But ultimately, you know, if I can get them to fix my bill and they hang up and they're like, I didn't really like that guy. I don't especially care. Not that I'm looking to be mean or anything like that. Right. Whereas if I am upset about something that my wife did, right? I care a whole lot about how she feels about me and about that relationship. And so I'm going to probably communicate with a lot more um, kindness, or at the very least, if I'm being mindful and deliberate, I'm going to communicate with a lot more kindness and a lot more patience and everything like that than I would with someone who I really don't care what they think of me. Right. That reminds me of a question I'd wanted to ask you. You and I had discussed um, in a previous conversation about um, how many people um, actually don't communicate effectively. More people than you'd think, let's put it that way. More people than you would think don't really communicate effectively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how does a person gauge or how would you gauge for a client if this is a person that knows how to communicate effectively or adaptively or not? Yeah, this is so tricky. And partially, I think it's tricky because we often aren't aware that we don't communicate as effectively as we think. Because, right. right, because that is one of those things where it's, it's more that's like the root of a lot of our problems, I would imagine. Yeah, right. And I think it's like knowing whether or not we communicate effectively partially is, you know, in our own eyes and our own perception of what we said and how it came across and everything. And at the same time, a lot of it is really in the eyes of the person we are speaking to. And so it's hard to know how something came across if we only have our own perspective, of course. So I don't know that there's any one answer to your question of like how we could know that because there are a number of things that we might do that that would be ineffective ways of communicating, right? And so, you know, 10 different people might communicate effectively in, uh, in a bunch of ways and might each communicate ineffectively in a different and unique way from the other. But, the, you know, one example that I see coming up a lot, and I'll give this as an example um, just to illustrate how many of us aren't even aware that we're not communicating as effectively as we think, is that often if we are upset by something, what we'll do is we will tell the other person that we are upset by it, if we even speak up, right? So we were talking before about when we bite our tongues and we don't speak up and everything like that. But even if we do choose to speak up, often what we'll do is we'll say something along the lines of like, I really didn't like that you did that. That bothered me, right? And we we say, you know, we say that sentence, period. And we think like, you know, maybe we pat ourselves on the back for speaking up and not avoiding it. Maybe we pat ourselves on the back for not being harsh, not being, you know, critical or judgmental. We're being maybe polite and basically saying really nicely, like, hey, like, I know you might not have meant it, but what you said really hurt my feelings. And we stop there. And the problem is, if we do that, we haven't necessarily told the other person what we want from them. And so right, we haven't given them an action item, right? It's how they can fix it or what you want them actually to do from that. Exactly. Um, so in that moment, right, am I looking for an apology? Am I looking for you to explain what was going on in your mind at the time? Am I looking for you to, you know, give me some kind of plan of how you're going to do it differently? Uh, who knows, right? I might want any any number of different things, but all I've done is tell you what bothered me without telling you what I would have liked to be different. And so the the skill there, right, like one of the skills <laughs> would be actually spelling out 
what I want and asking for exactly what I want, right? Like, hey, what you said really bothered me and it kind of hurt my feelings. And I would appreciate it if you would apologize to me and and try not to say things like that in the future. I think that that would, you know, be better for our relationship. Period. Right. Two things come up immediately there. One that um, I talk about this a lot, both in, in my writing and I think I might've mentioned this before in the podcast. You can't um, assume that people know what you want. A lot of, especially with the one of those close to you, a lot of times with our spouses, we'll be like, well, they should know I want them to do this or that. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't help anyone <laughs> to like make those assumptions. Like obviously if you're, if you're prioritizing the relationship, the better thing to do would just to be to spell it out, right? To not assume anyone's a mind reader. Oh, I know we talked about this, I think in the expectations podcast. Uh, managing expectations. You know, we people cannot read our minds, even those closest to us sometimes. So it's always better to just, if you want to be an effective communicator, just say what you want. The second thing I wanted to say is, um, I think that as obviously we know that we create our children's realities, right? So, um, you know, with a whole number of things, like whatever, however your household works growing up, is sort of what you think the baseline of normal is. Unless it's, you know, God forbid, a really not normal household and even the child realizes that things are maladaptive there. You know, we just think that everyone works this way. So, uh, you know, I, I, I know I found this when I got married and I've spoken to other friends that found this. Like, you know, my family growing up, my immediate family communicates very differently with each other than my husband's family communicates with them. So this was sort of the first time I realized like, wow, like there are people that just communicate in a totally different way um, with each other, right? So I think, um, is that a common thing you see that like people, you know, with their spouses, like they, they don't understand like how um, how they communicate because they grew up, just their family co- communicates differently than them. Than they- oh yeah, 100%. Um, with clients, with friends, in, in my own life, in my own marriage, certainly all of that's the case. Um, and even in my my you know, family of origin, just, you know, as, as I learned DBT skills and incorporated them more into my life and started uh, communicating in different ways, there was definitely, I think, some adjustment for my family because I, uh, although in certain ways, I've certainly replicated the things that I was raised with and the communication patterns that I was raised with. There are certain things that I definitely do differently, consciously so, uh, which is not meant to be a, a knock on my parents or anything like that. It's simply- Of course not, of course not, right. You know, differently. <laughs> Uh, and, and I can remember a few specific instances, like earlier in my, like learning of these skills and using of these skills where like, there was a, a noticeable, like pause on the other side when I think someone was taken aback by, um, not because they thought necessarily I had done something bad or wrong, but simply because but you just communicated differently, right? right. Like, and just more concrete, even the example we were just giving of like actually spelling out and asking for exactly what I wanted, uh, which, you know, others might have been a little bit more cautious about doing. Right. And I think I think that's one of the biggest challenges in the first year of marriage is figuring out those differences in communication, both with communicating with that new other side of your family and with your spouse, Um, because it's like the old joke, normal like me. Right. Everyone just assumes how they operate is the norm. (laughs) Um, So as the last question, how would you help a client navigate that situation where they're coming to you and they're they're just they're having like relationship communication issues? Not necessarily because each side is, um, either side is better communicators, but they just communicate differently, right? Like some people are, you know, they, you know, they, they overshare. Some people, you know, are more reserved. And there's all kinds of different communication uh, mashups that don't work. But, you know, how do you navigate that? 
Yeah, so uh, I referred to dialectics before, and one of you know one of the sort of underlying principles in DBT is this idea of like thinking and approaching situations dialectically. And so one of the ideas behind trying to think dialectically is trying to consider like what am I missing in my perspective? Like what makes perfect sense that I that I'm overlooking, or what about let's say the other person's perspective or their behavior? makes perfect sense. And you'll notice I'm saying it makes sense. I'm not saying it's right, it's good, it's effective necessarily, but how can I understand where this person's coming from in their yes. different behavior than mine or in their different you know, perception of things than mine or something like that? So as a starting point, I would probably encourage the person uh, that I'm talking to to consider like, okay, well, how can we make sense of this, right? Like not why is it right or good, but like why does it make sense that let's say your spouse does communicate in this way. And it might be simply taking a step back and realizing like, well, they were raised this way, their parents communicate this way, or, you know, something along those lines, or they had a previous relationship that, you know, that it makes sense that they developed this communication pattern. Uh, and then the second thing that comes to mind would be we have, uh, we were talking about the interpersonal effectiveness skills. And so the set of strategies that are, that emphasize improving the relationship, or at least maintaining the relationship you have with the other person. The acronym that we use is GIVE, the GIVE skills, uh, where G stands for being gentle rather than like attacking or judgmental or critical. The I stands for acting interested, meaning acting interested in understanding the other person and their perspective. The V stands for validation, which is letting the other person know that you understand and that what they're saying or doing or thinking or whatever makes sense to you. Um, that doesn't mean that you're saying everything about their perception or perspective or their behavior makes sense. But at the very least, it's figuring out what you can say, like, okay, like, I get that. Like, of course, that would be the case. And the E stands for having an easy manner, which I think of as basically not treating or not acting as though the thing you're talking about is like the biggest deal in the world and like this is gonna make or break us. And instead like having more of like a relaxed type of demeanor in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, number one, I'd probably emphasize dialectical thinking and trying to understand what about this does make sense. And then number two, in the actual communication with the person trying to address whatever the you know communication stylistic differences may be there, I would probably encourage the person to be gentle and to have an easy manner and to whatever extent they aren't entirely clear, or even if they are clear, just showing that they're curious and doing a lot of that acting interested, asking questions, trying to understand better. Um, and a lot of that type of approach, including the validation, really takes the pressure off the like, who's right, who's wrong, who's, you know, the good cop or not good cop, but, you know, who's the good one here and who's the bad one here and kind of reframes the conversation as like, we are in this together. We're going to try and understand this. We're going to try and figure it out. We're going to try and problem solve as opposed to like, I'm right, you're wrong. You did the bad thing and you shouldn't have done it. And now you need to change. And then the other person, of course, gets defensive and attacks back. And so this takes a lot of the like, you know, the need to win off the situation and makes it more of a like we win together as opposed to one of us wins against the other. Right. I think especially when it comes to like, you know, different sides of the family, it doesn't help you to be like, well, my family, I knew I, like we communicate normally and you don't. Right. <laughs> like This is even if you are a better communicator than your partner or whatever, like you're going to have to be communicating with them for a long time, hopefully. So it does everyone good to like not put judgment there, but to just be like, how am I going to continue <laughs> to work with this person so we communicate effectively? Yeah. Um, Thank you, Al. Thank you, Dr. Wiener, so much. This has been so helpful. And um, for anyone who's interested in purchasing the book, I'm going to have it in the episode, um, the episode description as a link. And um, we wish you a lot of continued success. Thank you very much. It was nice speaking with you.